0: believe that you're here. And we don't mean that in simply you're here in our heads or you're here in our thoughts, but we believe what the Bible teaches is your presence is here. And in any of us who have opened our lives up to you, we believe your spirit is inside of us. um, And we always believe he's always around any of us, talking to us, getting our attention, trying to let us pursuing us. So uh, Jesus, as we look into the Bible today, maybe you look into it not simply as a a textbook, but would you bring to life what we read and what we talk about because we want to see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, which we know means that supernaturally you have to do something. And we believe in the invisible world. We believe you can do something and you will do something in each and every one of our souls. Um, we even pray for the small children and babies downstairs. We believe they're capable of having some kind of interaction with the Holy Spirit. So we even pray that you would pour out your spirit on those uh, on the s- children downstairs as well as those who are working. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to go through a series of uh, dates here. 479 B.C. It's the date that Confucius died of natural causes. He's buried in Shandong Province in China. 483 B.C. It's the day that Buddha died. Natural causes, age 80. He was cremated. It's thought that his right tooth is still existing in a temple in Sri Lanka. 322 B.C. It's the day that Aristotle died of a stomach disease. He's buried, buried near Athens next to his wife. June 8, 632 A.D., Date Muhammad died. He died in the hands of one of his, wa- in the arms of one of his wives, died from a fever. He's died and he's and he's buried in Medina, Saudi Arabia, today. February 18, 1546, Protestant reformer Martin Luther died at age 62. He's buried in Wittenberg, Germany. December 14, 1799, George Washington died of acute laryngitis at age 67. He's buried in Mount Vernon, Virginia. June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, killed by a mob, died uh, buried in Nauvoo Township, Illinois. April 19, 1882, Charles Darwin died of congestive heart failure. He's buried in Westminster Abbey, London. August 25, 1900, Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosophical uh, foundation of Nazism, died from pneumonia. He's buried in Rücken, Germany. January 30th, 1948, Gandhi, uh, one of the more famous kind of Hindus of our generation, he was assassinated in New Delhi. He was cremated. There was controversy from his family what to do with the ashes. The ashes were poured out uh, only six years ago in 2008. November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy died, Arlington buried in Arlington National Cemetery, Virginia. April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King assassinated. He's buried in a National Historic Site in Atlanta. June 5th, 2004, uh, Ronald Reagan died of pneumonia. He's buried at the Presidential Library in California. This next one, I have an asterisk by it, August 16th, 1977. Who died that day? The asterisk means there's a question about it. Yeah. Yeah. Elvis, the asteriskist, because we don't know if he really died or not. We don't know. Um, Actually, he's died of an overdose. He's buried in Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. So all these people, I could have gone through a whole lot more. Great thinkers, religious leaders, social activists, great teachers. Um, They're all dead. They're all buried. And then... We have this unique individual that we gather because we're Christians, Jesus Christ, who we don't know exactly the year, but it's thought around 30, you know, 30 A.D. when he died, 31, we don't know exactly. And uh, of any great thinker, great social activist, great leader, great teacher in history, um, there's no one that even even claimed to be resurrected. Now, whether you believe he actually resurrected is something we're going to talk about today, but there's no even a claim of that. So right away, Jesus is already unique, because there's a claim from his followers, which would be many and most of us, that he's not buried where he was buried. He died, but he's resurrected. So we're going to look at that today, because that's what Easter is. It's not, we're not just a religion celebrating one of our religious holidays, holy days, We actually believe that Jesus holds an incredibly unique and exclusive position in all of history. Because his followers, we believe he not only died, but he was resurrected and his grave is empty. There's no bodily remnant of him anywhere because he's alive and he's resurrected physically. So what we've been doing the last number of weeks, we've been doing a series through the book of Mark. I'm calling it Seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and wanting to just take what I'll call a fresh look at Jesus. Because uh, some of you have grown up in the church, you've heard Bible stories for years, you've heard about Jesus for years, but I just want us to always step back and take and think of a fresh way of, who is this guy? And what's his role in my life, in an average, ordinary kind of way, in a way that they have supernatural interaction with this being called Jesus? What does that mean? And what is, where does Easter even play a role in that? So we've been going through the book of uh, Mark. So of course we skipped ahead last week to the Sunday called Palm Sunday, so when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, which was the Sunday before his arrest and crucifixion on the Friday after that. And so we're going to be looking Mark chapter 15 and 16, and just look at a unique part of the story. Um, and so. Here's some of the things I've said about Jesus up to this point throughout this series in Mark. So just hear me when I talk about, when we've talked about Jesus, all right? Jesus is powerful, terrifying, and amazing. These are all the things he's known as so far in the book of Mark. He's explosive. He's fierce. He's focused. He's confrontational, controversial, and supernatural. He's never hurried, never manipulative, never selfish. He's truthful, blunt, and disruptive. He's courageous enough to say what everyone else knows but won't say. He's playful, he's witty, he's dynamic. He's sensitive, compassionate, and incredibly kind. He's brilliant. He's wildly free and absolutely holy. He's full of truth, full of mercy. He's misunderstood, he's rejected, he's mocked, he's tortured, he's crucified. And now this incredible man is dead. So up until this point, Jesus has, he's an incredible you just read the book of Mark. It doesn't read like a, a of a soft poem. It reads like this incredible kind of almost orchestration of drums and confrontation and miracles and power and demons being cast out, people being healed, and Jesus going straight head on with the religious establishment and really ticking them off. But now he's dead. And again, remember, and I'll we'll read the section in a second here. This was the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark who was a traveling companion of Peter, who would have been an eyewitness to these things. Peter actually shows up in the story. John Mark was not an eyewitness, so Jesus died in about 30. So up and, uh, for the next number of decades, it was orally passed on. And then around 60 or so A.D., a lot of the disciples, the original eyewitnesses were dying off, mainly because they were being martyred, because they kept talking about this Jesus who was raised from the dead, who's the king of the world. And it wasn't really didn't really play well anywhere in the world at that time. And so the the the, the followers of Jesus were like, qu- "Can somebody write this down? We want to know what happened." And specifically in this case, there were followers of Jesus in Rome who were asking, "We, we want to see that we we kind of th- one of the questions probably was, did he really rise from the dead? Because the Christians in Rome at that time were undergoing persecution. It was t- life was getting tough for them. It wasn't really." popular to say you followed Jesus, let alone you followed Jesus who had risen from the dead. So to some degree, those Christians are wanting to know, is this really what happened? Because otherwise, we're wasting our suffering if it wasn't really true. So will you tell us, will you recount the life of Jesus? For? So John Mark, again, who had probably got most, if not all, of his oral accounts from Peter, who was an eyewitness to these things, he writes it all down. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is. It's, it's John Mark's accounting from what he understood in oral history of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All right. So here we'll, we'll jump into uh, John, uh, Mark chapter 15. And to do this, I'm, we're going hi- to highlight on one particular person. We'll s- introduce him early in the story here. So Mark chapter 15, go to the next slide. So Jesus has died. He's dying on the cross. So we skipped all that. I'm not going to – the torture scenes. I'm not skipping it because I don't want to talk about it, but we're going to jump ahead – And so this is the cross is Jesus, the two thieves, all kinds of, uh, you know, death groans, blood, all the stuff that's kind of gory. And this is what the Bible, to all of Jesus' followers, the male followers had all kind of fled. We all, we know that John, one disciple, was at the cross. The rest of them no longer had any courage to hang around. They were afraid. Here's what the Bible says in Mark chapter 15. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene. All right, She's the woman we're going to focus on. I'm going to trace her through the story today. She was Mary of a town called Magdala. That's why they call her Mary Magdalene. The only thing we know about her from Scripture was she was a devoted follower of Jesus, primarily because earlier in her life, and this we read in the Gospel of Luke, she had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. So we don't know exactly how that happened to her, how she became so ups- uh, oppressed and harassed by demonic influences. And again, if if you're new here this morning, that's kind of what I call, we call a weird meter thing, like demons, weird, whatever. But we do believe the Bible talks about that in ways that are real. And there was not so much demon uh, possession, so to speak, but the way that the Bible talks about it is harassment. It's demonized. It's like, but there were, so this woman had a horrible life. You can imagine that, you know, what her life was like being uh harassed by seven demons um joy was probably non existent in her life. Her life was in those people were they were seen as insane, they were afflicted there was no peace in their lives and then we read in the gospel that Jesus cast seven demons out of her, so you can understand why she's an incredibly devoted follower of this man who transformed her life in supernatural, incredible ways, all right. And she's the one who kind of gets number one eyewitness billing in the Bible. Not just in the Gospel of Mark. Every one of the Gospels, she's like the famous one. And what's interesting even about that is in those days, a woman's testimony in a court of law was not admissible. They were not seen as reliable. So isn't it just like God to flip that upside down and the primary eyewitnesses were all women? The primary eyewitness initially being a woman who had a very checkered past, demonic influence in her life. So if they were trying to concoct a story about a resurrected being, those men were smart enough, they would have not, u- they would have not written about a woman as an eyewitness. They would have con- concocted an airtight story for that culture. And the story has all kinds of holes to that culture because women shouldn't be telling us these things. They're not reliable. But again, it's like, just like God to flip things up on their head, all right? So they were, they were watching from a distance, Jesus dying on the cross. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. Salome was the mother to two of the disciples. So these were all women who had some connection to Jesus, whether their sons were disciples or they were followers of his. They had been followers of Jesus and cared for him while he was in Galilee. So they were kind of the probably... Help take care of all kinds of details and administrative stuff and whatever. Many other women who had come with him, to Jerusalem, were also there. Now, I just want you to notice, go back for a second here. I want you to notice they were watching. Mark is very careful to say they saw this happen. All right? Think about court of law and eyewitnesses. Next one. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, as evening approached. Joseph of Arimathea, that's not the father of Jesus, Joseph. He had died, we assume. Uh, took a risk and went to Pilate, who was the one who, the Roman leader, who basically had to authorize the crucifixion, and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The Romans had made an industry of death so they knew if somebody was dead or not. And we'll talk about the reason I said that because we're going to talk about that later. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. All right, next one. Joseph brought a long sheet of linen cloth, and he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. I mean, just imagine what that task was like. Um, bloody, awful, smelly let alone the emotions of sadness because the person they loved and thought was going to change the world his, was dead. He laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Those tombs in those days usually were carved out of rock, little caves or whatever, like two-foot-high entries. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdala and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where the body was laid. They saw the tomb that Joseph put the body of Jesus. They saw him die they saw the tomb. Now, I'm going to say, too, about the stone that was rolled in place, because it said Joseph rolled it in place. The way they had it, the way they did the tombs there, a a stone actually was kind of a little bit uphill, and they had a groove in this rock, and they could roll the stone down. One man could roll the stone down, but to roll it back up would have taken many people. So, I'm just keep that in mind, too, because that's how they did graves and tombs then, all right? So, Mary Magdalene saw him die. They saw where the tomb was. And again, I feel like I'm a lawyer making a court case, for is the reason I'm saying that, we'll talk about it. Go ahead. Next slide. So then Mark 16, pff, this is a continuation, Jesus is, r- the, he's risen from the dead, okay? Saturday evening, so was, he died the day before when the Sabbath ended, Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, same three women, went out and purchased burial spices they could anoint Jesus' body because uh, they weren't embalmed bodies smelled once they died and started to decompose and so the habit was to get ointments, oils uh, to care for the body so you had to basically be the embalmer, not an embalmer you had to care for the body yourself if one of your friends or family members died so they went out and bought these things very early on Sunday morning just at sunrise they went to the tomb on the way they were asking each other who's going to roll away the stone so we can get in there they saw that Joseph roll the stone down into this kind of groove, and they knew they weren't going to be able to move it back up, so they were thinking, who's going to, who are we going to get? We? And what, we, what they don't know, and what we don't know from this gospel, but it's clear in other gospels, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were concerned that Jesus' disciples would steal the body and claim a resurrection. So they said to Pilate, Pilate, you need to make sure the tomb is sealed and placed armed guards there. Because if you don't, his followers will steal the body and claim a resurrection. So they don't know that had already happened, that, this bo- that it had been sealed, there were guards there. The guards aren't here when they get there and because of what happened. But there was all kinds of precaution against the body being stolen and some kind of false rumor being started. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance uh, to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. Next one. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. That's b- probably an understatement. You go to a tomb expecting a dead body and you see some brilliant being in a white, clo- white robe. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. Again, how many times when angels show up in the Bible, they're always telling people, don't be afraid, don't be alarmed. Angels must have been quite an awesome kind of sight. But plus, in this case, where's Jesus? Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Again, look at the emphasis on looking. They saw him die. They saw where this tomb was. They weren't mistaken. It was the tomb he was at. And angel says, look, this is, and what they, what they would do, they would lay the body on a shelf in the rock. So they had to go into this two-foot-high opening to go into the area, and then there was a shelf cut in the rock, and the body was just laid there, wrapped in linen. So they didn't actually bury it in the dirt, they just laid it on, and so the angel said, look, this is where he was. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. Now, interesting when they said make, su- make sure you tell Peter and uh, highlight it make sure you tell Peter what's happened here and I won't, we won't finish the rest of the story here in the other gospels it, it fleshes it out they, uh, they run back they rush back they run back and they tell Peter Jesus it seems empty and this angel or whatever it was said he's alive <laughs> well in one of the gospels it says they thought it was nonsense these men didn't believe the women. It was nonsense. They're emotionally messed up right now, whatever. They didn't believe it. But Peter believed something enough. It said Peter just took off toward the tomb. And he took off with John. And actually, the, in the Gospel of John, John writes about it. And John doesn't say it's him, but we know it's him, just how the, the language is used there. He says, and Peter took off, and the other disciples took off with him. And the other disciple passed Peter and got there first. Like, I'm faster than him. I don't know, you know, maybe John. But they get there, and it said John stood there by the tomb. Peter, bold enough, just went right in there. And he saw, who. All right. So, and it's interesting, again, John Mark got his information from Peter. So he's heard Peter tell this story probably dozens and dozens of times. And, again, it's interesting to note What's been passed on is the women saw him die. They know he was dead because they heard what Pilate had said. Is he dead? Yes, he's dead, the Roman soldiers say, who were good at knowing people who were dead. They saw where his body was placed, so there's no mistaking. They weren't at the wrong grave, and they saw that it was empty. So specific, very specific eyewitness accounts. Again, if it had been made up, if you and I were going to make up a tale of resurrection, we would have been a little more airtight than that. We wouldn't have used women. Other things would have gone on. All right. So there's two questions i want to ask. Go to the next slide. Two questions I want to ask from this. Uh, the resurrection, did it happen? But the second question is, so what? Because many of you here, like me, we believe it happened. Then the question following is, well, if we do believe it happened, shouldn't that change something about how we do our lives? So the first part was, so what? I mean, first part, how did, it, did it really happen? All right. You know, it's interesting. There's, uh, there's all kinds of theories about what might have happened to concoct this story. There's one theory of that there was some of the incredible gross fraud going on. It was an incredible fraudulent conspiracy to, uh, to make it look like Jesus had resurrected. And if you remember, the disciples were scared to death. They had all run away. So not only uh, were they probably incapable because they were scared to death, but the Romans had more power than the Nazis in Germany. They couldn't have pulled off this conspiracy without underneath the noses of the Romans. So this whole gross fraud, plus two, almost to a man, these disciples all died a death of a martyr. They were killed because they claimed Jesus had risen from the dead. If they knew it was a fraud before that axe came on their neck, they would say, wait, 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 we lied, we lied. And not one of them. They all went to their death. And who dies for what they know is a lie? Some people might say, well, we have, you know, there's martyrs for other religions, there's Muslim martyrs, they die for what they believe in. But these are men that died, if they died for what they thought was a lie, they're the greatest fools in all the earth. So, they, so gr- the, the whole idea of being a fraud if we're honest, has to be kind of crossed off the list. Some people say it was. There's a th- it's called the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. He was just swooning. Um, actually, if you talk to, uh, I, had, I had a uh, friend of mine that on campus that was uh, from the Middle East. He was uh, Muslim, and that's generally what he believes. And Muslims believe is Jesus didn't really die. He was substituted off the cross. Um, he didn't die. But again, the Romans had made an industry of death. So the fact that Mark says, Pilate asked the Roman officer, is he dead? He said, yes, he's dead. They knew when somebody was dead. They would killed hundreds and thousands of people. They knew somebody was dead. So he was dead. Other people say, well, there's this ser- statement called the vision hypothesis. They so much wanted to believe Jesus was risen from the dead, it was kind of a mass hysteric hallucination that all these followers of Jesus were s- sucked into. They, they believed so badly that he was risen from the dead that uh, they, they started writing like it was true. Keep in mind, they didn't really expect this. Jesus had talked about him being risen from the dead. Disciples didn't expect it. They all took off and hid. They were scared to death. They didn't expect this to happen. So to propose there was this incredible, you know, mass hallucination, mass psychotic uh, event that's kind of a stretch too. The last and one of the more recent issues that people often say was, well, he was resurrected in their shared memories. It's almost as if somebody were to, you know, people do things today in the shared memories of Martin Luther King. You know, the the uh, civil rights movement, and the sh- we have these shared memories, and yes, in our minds, Martin Luther King is here today. Or in our minds, you we, we know, R- Ronald Reagan is here today. We have these great memories of these great men. But nobody, when they talk about whether it's Reagan or Martin Luther King or any famous person they've loved or followed, nobody claims that they're resurrected physically. So this whole idea of, well, what the disciples are really talking about is they have these shared common memories, and so that brings Jesus back to life. It's kind of like when an athlete says, well, I know my dad died last month, but he's here with me. Well, that's kind of a shared memory. That's not resurrection. They're not saying my father is physically on the field next to me. So, and again, you might have other objections if you're a person who wants to be a thinker, which we all want to be thinkers. Jesus never said the Bible never tells us to check our minds out at the door. We have to be thinkers about these things. But a lot of the accusations of what could have happened, if you think about it, don't hold as much water as, th- as you think. Now, the other possibility, and this was interesting, because just yesterday in the paper. In the Bloomington paper, there was an article written by, I think it was a local pastor. I'm not going to say who it was because I don't know the man. I don't know all of his motives. But he was writing about the part of the story of the crucifixion where Pilate, and he was talking about how too many times we make the Bible an idol. We worship the Bible. And he was talking about the place where Pilate says, I wash my hands of this man Jesus. Because Pilate said, I don't find anything wrong with him. I'm washing my hands. And so he said to them, what do you want to do? And they said, we want to kill him. We want to crucify him. So this author from this article in the paper yesterday basically says, uh, Well, they wrote that in the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wrote that into the story because they really wanted to blame the Jews for Jesus dying. They didn't want to blame the Romans. They wanted to blame the Jews, even though the writers of the gospel are Jews. And this was really an anti-Semitic kind of addition to the story. And this is what the writer says about the Bible account. No reasonable and sensible person could conceive Pilate doing what the Gospels describe. In other words, we can pick and choose what you want to believe in the Bible. Yeah, I don't think a reasonable or sensible person would believe that Pilate would have done. I don't believe a reasonable or sensible person would believe that Jesus actually rose from dead. I don't believe a reasonable or sensible person saw Jesus eat food after his resurrection. So there is that general thing of, okay, are we concerned about being perceived as reasonable and sensible by the rest of the culture? If that's your driving concern, then you can choose to pick and choose what you want to believe in the Bible. Thomas Jefferson did that. He actually cut the Bible up as to what he liked and what he didn't like. But it seems like the Bible gives us the option of either, yes, we believe this is true. Not maybe like in a nitpicky every single, but in the general consensus of the details that are given, we believe this is true. And it, the unified voice in the New Testament is Jesus was physically risen from the dead. But yet, this was a pastor in the article in paper yesterday. Well, no reasonable or sensible person would believe that some of these details because the disciples had other agendas that was going on that shaped their account of the details. They had no agenda. They were a bunch of, cori- <laughs> they were a bunch of cowards initially. So in that sense, again, there's a longer conversation. If you're not sure if Jesus rose from the dead physically, that's another conversation. I'd love to have more with you. But that's, in in essence, okay, he rose from the dead. But most of you here probably came here thinking, well, yeah, I already thought that. But then the question becomes this, okay, why does it matter? Well, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I believe Jesus was risen from the dead, okay, well, because of that, I get to go to heaven after I die, and I get resurrected. That's a true statement. But that's not the primary statement that the Gospels or the rest of the New Testament explain why it matters. Because if it only matters, Jesus didn't come simply to get you into heaven after you die. Yes, that's part of the gospel message. But he came to give you a new kind of life on this earth now. And what's interesting in the New Testament, let me just read a few passages where it talks about where People, the, the Bible talks about since Christ was raised from the dead, what's different about us? Not just belief, not just our different beliefs, but what's different substantially about you and I and our lives on an everyday, ordinary basis, all right? In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power, power is going to be the key word here, the word power, because that's how it, why it matters. Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, Now we may also live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So the resurrection matters because something happened that now we have access to a power that we can say no to sin. We can say no to pornography. I can say no to getting back at somebody with revenge. I can say no to being stingy instead of generous. And it's not willpower. It's a supernatural ability because the spirit of Jesus is alive in, I, in us. So it matters because there's power that now becomes accessible to us, human beings with flesh and blood. There is power available to us. And now Paul says to us, "You can." we're not a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to sin. You have power not to, and it's not simply grit-your-teeth willpower. It's not try-harder power. It's supernaturally accessible power. Not in a weird way. You don't have to go smoke pot or anything to get the power. It's power available to you if you're open to what God wants to do. Next passage, Ephesians chapter 1. I've mentioned a couple times lately, the last few weeks, the prayer that may the eyes of your heart be opened. For the eyes of your heart be opened. And this was from this passage, because Paul says this. I also pray, he just said, I pray the eyes of your heart be opened. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So Paul's saying the power and the word in the New Testament for power is the same word we get our word dynamite from. The power, the dunamis, the power that somehow transformed this body where the heart wasn't beating and it was dead, the body of Jesus, transformed it to a living being. That power is available, Paul just said this in Ephesians, to us. And he's not just saying it's available to you when you die and now you're going to be resurrected. It's no, the the power that that transformed death to life is available to you to transform death to life in your own life. Whether it's darkness in your life or things you feel like you're a slave to, the same power is available to you. Supernatural power, that's the word here. Because of the resurrection, we're not talking simply life after death. Yes, that's there. But it's life before death. There's a power available to you, life before death. In the last part, in the last passage, again, this is the Apostle Paul, he writes this, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Paul's not saying, I want to die to see if I raised from the dead too. He's talking about in this life, here and now, I want to experience that same supernatural dunamis, dynamite, whatever it was, however that functions, There's some kind of accessible power through what God did in Jesus when he rose from the dead that is now available to us. And I'm not talking like superpowers, you know, Batman versus Superman, who wins the battle kind of thing. I'm talking simply like the power to forgive somebody who's hurt you deeply. Supernatural. The power to be generous with your money when everything looks tight. That's supernatural. The power to say no to pornography or other addictions that promise you life but in the end suck you into death. If you've been stuck in any of those kind of chains of sin, you know you need supernatural power to say no to those things. It's not simply an exercise in willpower. It's not just simply stop it. Why don't you stop drinking, stop pornography, stop your drug addiction. You know that doesn't do it for you. You need supernatural ability outside of yourself brought inside of you through the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. And it's not as simple as a decision. It's not willpower. It's, it's always being open to what, how the Holy Spirit wants to work in you. So this power, the does it matter, why does it matter, so what question of the resurrection is, our lives can look incredibly different. And here's the question I wrote down in my notes. What would it look like if for the next 30 days you lived 100% in the power of the resurrection? Now, it's not possible this side of heaven, but what would it look like if you, well, there'd be a boldness about you that no one else could understand because you would no longer fear the opinions of people not liking you or thinking you're weird. So there'd be a boldness about you talking about Jesus. You'd have the ability to forgive people who hurt you deeply. You have the ability to be generous even when your money is not there. You would have the ability to be, have integrity that's beyond doubt in your relationship. Your marriage would significantly be different because you would have the, the ability to give away love without expecting something back in return. You could give forgiveness even when your spouse has kind of slighted you. Your ability to, to respond to people you don't like that you work with neighbors that tick you off your ability to deal with how you think about your money if we really believe that what is dead became alive through a supernatural power and we believe we are now infused by supernatural realities something's going to be different about you and your relationships your money your time your habits and you're not going to turn all of a sudden like some you know holy joe angel but you're going to be the kind of person that will bring life to every circle you walk into. That's what Jesus did. He, he blew people. Even when Jesus was around sinners, prostitutes, there was something about him that was attractive to them, not in a sexual way. Like, we, we like being around this guy. He brings us life. He doesn't condemn us, but neither does he want us to stay in our sin. I mean, Jesus personified living life without contempt, forgiveness, Holiness, power, the, what I said before, he was alive, awake, and free. That's what the power of the resurrection is, the power that you and I can live alive and awake and free. I don't need to give in to when my body tells me, yeah, you, need to be, you should be mad at that verse. Hold the grudge a little bit longer, because the grudges are life-giving. We know that. <laughs> they, they kind of feel energized. But it's the power to do some of those really simple, but supernaturally nece- necessary kind of things. Forgiveness, generosity, and integrity. Those are hard. And it's not just willpower habits. So in the end, like I said, all those men and women, all the men I listed, they were all dead. They're in their tombs. They're great thinkers, great activists, great teachers, great leaders in many ways. But there's only one um, whose followers not only claim the tomb is empty, but actually believe it was so, and not simply because it's a wish dream. And that if that's the case, then there's only one who has the privilege or the authority to have a crown placed on his head. That The Bible says his throne is above every single throne in the entire universe. That there's nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't share power. He is the king. So you think about how you think about Jesus. That's what, I th- what I've said before. Jesus is the king. And we obey kings, and if they're good kings, which Jesus is incredibly good, we trust them. We trust they're making decisions based on our well-being. But you, you can't choose whether or not to obey a king. You're in the kingdom, or you're a rebel. So Jesus is not your friend. He is your friend, but he's not primarily your friend, your therapist, your advisor. He's not simply somebody you go to to get you out of a pinch. He's the king. And the Bible says because of the resurrection, he's the king. And so the challenge is uh, make the resurrection matter in your life. Treat Jesus like he's the king. And be open to the ways in which his power, supernatural, death-to-life-giving power can bring life to your soul and make you a person of gratitude, forgiveness, integrity, generosity, mercy, courage. What we say here at Exodus is we we exist because we want to transform people, including ourselves, into abnormally loving, abnormally courageous, and abnormally joyful people. Well, the only way you become abnormal is supernatural. We don't mean abnormal like weird, but weird in a supernatural way. And that's what the, that's why that's why that's what Easter matters, because we believe we now have the access to be those kind of people. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, there's not <laughs> there's not a person here, I don't think, that would say I don't want to become more generous, more a person of more integrity and courage and love and joy and peace. But every single one of us have our understandable but also small-minded fears about why we would choose to obey you as the king. So Jesus, the Bible talks about your love overcoming and casting out our fears. So we know, Jesus, that your love for us as we experience that is what casts out our fears for why we choose not to make you the king. So Jesus, we want to experience more of your love your supernatural love, unconditional love, because we want the fears of our following you as king to be erased and nullified, because we wanna be the kind of people who become full of the power and the life and the love that comes from God alone. So whatever fears we have, God, would you, would you dissolve those through your love? And would you turn us into people who truly are the kind of bold, courageous, loving, peaceful, joyful people that the original disciples and your followers were in those years after your resurrection. They changed the world, and it's still changing. And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. uh, Amen. Uh, We finish every...